we're going to read Luke chapter 16 from verse 16 to 31. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us, and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. That's the reading from today. You can keep your Bibles open. Well, great. Let's get into that passage and Luke chapter 16 and come at it with a question. How easy is it to get to heaven? Now, it's the kind of question that we'd love our non-Christian friends to think a bit more seriously about because it's a really important subject. And yet, Jesus says this is really a question for believers to think about more than anybody else. Because if you look at verse 16, where it starts, it seems that Jesus is saying that there's a real danger of forced entry 
into heaven. See verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. That's a strange thing to say, isn't it? What does he mean? But it might be that uh, until uh, Jesus came, uh, people looked at the Old Testament and they said, but it's really hard to get into heaven because people, when they got into the promised land, were quickly ejected out of it. But now, we're told in the New Testament that Jesus comes and does it all for us, and therefore, hey, fear not, <coughs> eternal life is guaranteed. In other words, you can get into heaven much easier today than you used to be able to do before. Just tell God that Jesus died for you, and you are qualified to get in. And the point that Jesus seems to make in this passage is that actually you can't gate-crash heaven by you just saying the right words. It actually depends, in verse 17, how seriously we've taken God's word. It's not our word that counts, it's his. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the very least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. So, in that example in verse 18, I take uh, divorce and remarriage. Now, I might try and use my own words to justify divorce and remarriage, but God's word for it is adultery. And not one stroke of his word will fail. So it's no good me trying to force my way into heaven, saying divorce and remarriage is okay because now I believe the gospel. Now, of course, the adultery of divorce and remarriage can be forgiven, just like any other sin. But it only happens if we admit that our divorce and remarriage is adultery, rather than try to justify it and say it isn't. It's the difference. Can't force our way by rebranding uh, what uh, God has said. Now that's just an example. The big point that Jesus is making is that God's words are for keeps and cannot be changed. And the story of the rich man is ultimately the story of a man who couldn't force himself into the kingdom, although he thought he was in. But actually, we'll go and see that he ignored God's word. So there are three things for us to learn about how we listen to God so that we can do it very carefully today. The first thing is to recognize that although God speaks, the real problem is that we don't care. We've got other things on our mind. You might say this story about a rich man and a beggar man. It's so simple. Anyone can follow. <coughs> I'm going to show you that these words are just so brilliantly uh, uh, helpful 
in teaching the Bible in very simple ways. Just to make the point, the Bible is a very simple book to understand. So if you just look at those two verses in verses 19 and 20, you will see immediately how we are drawn in. The rich man is described as having everything, and Lazarus is described with nothing, and everything in you screams out, this is not fair. Just two verses get you to realize that it isn't. And the rich man has all the resources to help Lazarus. Why, that rich man wouldn't have, wouldn't have noticed if some of the food going into the bin at the back of his house was given to Lazarus at the gate. He had all the resources just from the picking up from his table. But secondly, he doesn't see the man at the gate. Lazarus, in verse 21, would have been very happy with the leftovers uh, from the rich man's uh, food, uh, but he doesn't get any. And whereas the rich man has everything, Lazarus is completely helpless with nothing. Why is he so helpless? He can't even get to the gate. Other people have got to lay him there. And there he is at the gate. The rich man can see him every time he goes in and out of the house. He's got to go through the gate every single day. He sees this need in front of him. He has the resources every single day to meet this need in front of him. And thirdly, he knows God's law. He is Jewish at the end of the day. In verse 24, he calls Abraham his father. And therefore, he knows the Jewish laws. He knows that you care for the poor. But there's so much happening in each day. If you look at verse 19, the rich man was dressed in purple, fine linen, lived in luxury every day. He's got his diaries full with uh, his own uh, concerns. That God's word doesn't even cross his mind. And I'll tell you the chilling thing about this story. And that is that God doesn't shout. As there's no making of mistakes and then the rolling of thunder and the loud voice speaking out of heaven saying, Hey mate, you're getting this wrong. No, God doesn't shout. Uh, one day he can go and live in luxury along with the next day and there's no major disturbance in his world. God doesn't shout. What he said in his law, he said. And that's it. It's easy to forget that it's even there. But not one letter of that law is going to change. Incidentally, when we talk about God's law, we're not talking about a legal document and the kind of paper exercise that most of us might think. God's law is actually about God's love. And when we forget God's law, then what happens is that the love of this rich man for his beggar isn't there. 
we've been going around our estate and we use a little flowchart to explain how when we ignore God, we tend to ignore other people as well. But that's exactly what happens when we ignore God's law. And there's just no law, and therefore there's no love. That's why the law continues to be important for us, for that reason. It parts the way to love. And this man just didn't love. Why, even his dogs, in verse 21, took better care and better notice of the beggar man than the rich man did. So God does speak, but we don't care. And when we say we don't care, not just for God and his law, but we don't care for each other. He has, he sees, he knows, but he doesn't love. Okay. God speaks, and when he speaks, he speaks about the future, and we don't care. Have you noticed how this little story gets that across to us? This man's life before death is described in just one verse, verse 19. But then after he dies, you have ten verses to describe what happens next. Now, it's weighted that way, so we get to understand that the future is the big deal. And the future of this man was hell. Again, it's very cleverly done. Just a few verses, you get some important headlines about what hell is like. First, you see that he is now helpless. The title rich man is dropped after his funeral in verse 22. He's not referred to as rich man again. Secondly, it is incredibly painful. Look at uh, four verses that tell us that. In verse 23, he looked up and saw, he, he, in Hades, he was in torment. Verse 24 Father Abraham, pity on me, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Verse 25, son, remember that in your life you received good things, Lazarus did bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Verse 28, I have five brothers, let him warn them so they will not come to this place of torment. Thirdly, it is permanent. The idea that there's a second chance after we die and we get another uh, opportunity on the other side of death is entirely removed in verse 26 with the description of a chasm that no one can cross. So the possibility of change is removed. There's going to be no crossing. Now, Roman Catholics uh, and some Church of England people have come up with uh, something called purgatory. In fact, actually, the vicar of this parish, the Anglican vicar of this parish, believes uh, in purgatory. Purgatory is a convenient place where you go to after you die, you've not really made heaven, but you can work your way up to heaven over time in purgatory and therefore everybody gets in at the end that's the beauty of it 
How can you see that just is a great example of how when God speaks about the future, we don't care and we invent our own theories to gate crash our way in. Fourth, gate crashing instead doesn't work because God's words in the end don't change and our convenient words would make a difference. Fourthly, it is lonely. Lazarus has got somebody, he's got Abraham. The rich man doesn't. He's on his own. So the idea of frying with friends, as uh, we might sometimes put it, I don't need to worry about hell because all my mates are going to be there. We'll party. And the idea of frying with friends doesn't exactly work. There's no big reunion in hell with uh, family. In fact, actually, if you look at verse 28, he doesn't want his family there. Uh, the Bible does speak about the future. It does tell us that our lives are weighted with a little throwaway verse about this life to a great amount of coverage for the future. It tells us about the future at length, but we don't care. Thirdly, God speaks only through the Bible. See, the former rich man wants Bible top-up. Yes, yes, Lazarus, yes, I know they've got the law and the prophets in verse 27, but will you please send Lazarus to my brothers? Because a special visitor from this side of the grave will help them to take the message seriously. And Abraham puts him right, doesn't he, in verse 31? If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, can you see that that makes the point that uh, Bible revelation is full revelation? So most of the prophets are there to tell us that the information has been available right from the very earliest of times. All the information has been available from the earliest of times. God doesn't need to do top-up. He may very graciously do light-up, in the sense that he throws more light on life after death, so that with the resurrection of Jesus, we will have more light on the resurrection, but there was resurrection in the Old Testament, in the sense that when Moses led his people out of Egypt, he promised them that God was going to take them into a new country. He promised them that there was going to be a promised land, and he urged them to live with that future in mind, to keep trusting God's word, because not one of them would fail. That's how Moses spoke to the people in his day, and they didn't trust those words, and they couldn't force their way in, even though at one point they tried. <coughs> and really, we talk about heaven in the same promised land terms that Moses spoke. It's all there, with Moses and the prophets. The Bible revelation is full revelation. No top-up revelation needed after that. Secondly, the Bible revelation is written revelation. I know it sounds Irish to say that. It's so blooming obvious. But what Moses and the prophets said are actually 
it's all there to be read. And so therefore, if we're going to listen to God today, we've made this point in our service already, we have to get it very straight that we're going to hear God speak to us about today's stuff through what he has written through Moses and the prophets and since then as well that make up the whole Bible. So all God's words are written down. They are written down so that we can see that not one of them will fail. We'll be able to check that every single promise has been kept. That's why they're written. So, friends, no extra messages from the grave. That's why spiritualism and the consulting of mediums is wrong. We were talking today on the doorstep with somebody uh, about this uh, very subject, this very thing. God, you will notice from this passage, does not permit a dead person to speak to anyone. Couldn't get clearer, can you? And incidentally, if he did allow a dead person to speak to anybody, you can see from verse 28 that the prime message will be a message of warning. But if you go to a spiritualist church today, I gather the main message, the prime message, is that they are in touch with voices that reassure us that everything is all right. But that's the deception of hell. It denies that it's there. So there's no warning that is necessary. But if there was an authentic voice from the dead, it will be, do not come to this place. In the days when I used to take funeral services, I used to always remember... Because when you take a funeral service as a minister, the coffin is right in front of you. And I'm thinking to myself, if this person's a Christian in the box, then they will be wanting me to tell their friends and family not to go to hell. And if they're not a Christian, then I know from this story that the one message they will get out of their box to say is, don't come here. So what's to take home for us tonight? Well, if you're new to Christianity, it's fantastic that you're here, but... Can you see how easy it is for us to live for ourselves, do the day-to-day -day thing, and not really clock the fact that God is a speaking God and that we should really listen because not one word will fail. And the trouble is, if we want to do the day-to-day -day thing, God isn't going to shout. So we really mustn't get into the idea of thinking that there's somehow going to be a, a spooky feeling that God is going to give us a special tap on the shoulder to show us that he's there. No, either we get to grip with what God graciously says in the Bible, or our future will be painful, prolonged, and very lonely. So we need to take what God says in the Bible seriously, especially about the future. Secondly, if you're a churchy person, well, isn't it a surprise that Jesus is cautioning the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day? 
And he tells them not to try and force themselves into the kingdom, saying, hey, we're no longer under law, we're under grace. We've heard the gospel. And I think verse 16 points to that danger. Don't force your way in by implying that God's changed his mind on certain things. If we don't take God's words and apply them seriously about the day-to-day concerns that we have, where very often our own wills can get the better of us, areas, for example, like divorce and remarriage, and, for example, how we look after the poor, then we will discover one day to our cost that God's word doesn't change. However convincing other reassuring words might be spoken to us to tell us that it's going to be all right. But what if you are a believer and we want to take God's words seriously? My friends, let me controversially say that it is really important for us to see that God's word is written. And that is how we listen to him. So there is a warning here, isn't there, not to try and do anything that comes remotely like top up to what the Bible has said. Yes, God is very good. He does light up his word with other words in other ways. I hope in some ways he's done that tonight, that my words have thrown more light on his words. But in the end, what's really important is what God says here. That is his word to us today. This is where we've got to come if we're going to listen to God. Hide the Bible and you will put God out of sight. And we need to make sure that we understand the difference between light up and top up. And cling to what God has said. It's the only way we'll be ever able to listen to God. Now I'm going to stop there and um, pray that God will help us to go to Scripture as the only way to listen to Him. And then I imagine you might want to shoot me down in some of the things that I've said um, and ask questions because I have been provocative. Uh, And it'll be good for us to talk a bit more informally. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are a speaking God and we thank you that you've written down words to help us to listen. And thank you that what you said all those years ago in the past will help us with today's big questions, not least in divorce and remarriage, but also how to care care for people with our money. Help us not to look for new words, but to live, obeying what you have said in the past. And we ask this for our good and for the glory of your name. Amen.